This morning's gospel lesson, it's called the Transfiguration. It's, it's a rich and vivid uh, imagery of Jesus, right? The Transfiguration of Jesus. It's a funny word. In the Greek, the word is the same word as metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. You know that word, right? Metamorphosis, like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Metamorphosis. The, the metamorphosis of Jesus. The metamorphosis of Jesus on a mountaintop with Moses and Elijah, who had been long gone, appearing alongside him. This, this story of the transfiguration, it's amazing, but it's also very confusing. It's strange, let's face it. It's an odd story. The transfiguration, though, it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic, we call them synoptic gospels, the ones that tell really the story of the things of Jesus' life. And many historians, when looking at this story, say this was, was one of the stories that was told verbally, orally, for, for the, um, early, in the earliest part of the church, well before the gospels were even written. It's one of the most told stories. And so this consistency, the consistency of the transfiguration appearing in all of the Gospels and the consistency of it through early church history, it, it points us to the importance of this story. The importance to the early believers and the importance, I would say, to us as well. I want to give you a little bit of background of what led to the transfiguration, to this moment. So immediately prior to this moment in the text, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling. They've been traveling all over the region. And Jesus has been doing, doing, doing. He's been healing the sick and the blind and many others with great challenges and afflictions. And everywhere they go, people are lining up. They're lining up to see Jesus. They're lining up to see this one that they've heard about who's doing these strange and mysterious things. Jesus and the disciples feed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few small fish. Indeed, wherever they go, great things are happening. In a moment of time away from the crowds, again, a little bit before this morning's story, Jesus is gathered with the small group, his disciples. And Jesus asks them a question. He says to them, who do you say that I am? It's Peter who responds to Jesus, and he says, you're the Messiah. You are the living God. Having been with Jesus through all of this, having experienced what Jesus was saying and doing, Peter comes out and makes this powerful declaration to Jesus, this declaration of who he is. It's one of Peter's shining moments as a disciple. In fact, Jesus responds to Peter in just about the greatest of accolades I could imagine hearing. This is what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, right? I mean, he's not just affirming Peter. He's declaring that Peter is going to be the leader of the church. He changes his name. His name is Simon. Did you catch that at the beginning? His name is Simon. Simon means hearer, 
hearer, one who hears. He changes his name to Peter or Cephas. Do you know what that one means? Rock, right? Rock. Rock. On this rock, I'll build my church. This is like, come on, this is the moment of glory for him. But it doesn't last long. Right after this, right after this, Jesus starts talking to the disciples about his coming death. And that he's going to be going to Jerusalem and that they're going to go with him, that he's going to undergo suffering at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and and that he's going to be killed and then that he's going to be raised. And Matthew writes that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. Now, when I read that, I think, yeah, that makes sense. It's like, you know, saying to your friend, please don't go, or saying to your your spouse, come back soon, right? But Jesus doesn't take it that way. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Okay, this is quite the swing, right? These these words are, are actually like the harshest words that Jesus uses to just about anyone in all of Scripture. He calls Peter Satan. And it's six days now after this roller coaster ride of accolade and curse that we get to today's lesson, this, this account of the transfiguration. But there, there are two important things about what just, what just happened that I think matter for our look at the transfiguration to help us better understand what's happening on that mountain. First, Peter has declared and Jesus has confirmed that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. The second is that Jesus tells of his coming death. These are two things that are key for the fulfillment of the prophecies, but they're also key to understanding who was this one that they were with, that they were traveling with. And so it's with this context in mind that we then walk with James and, and John and Peter and Jesus up this mountain. Matthew makes it very clear that these are the ones. It's just the four of them, Jesus and the three disciples. This isn't the first time that these three disciples have been set apart by Jesus. They're among his first disciples, and they're going to be the three who Jesus takes to pray with him when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane that night he's arrested. Peter and James and John. They're consistent and faithful companions to Jesus. Even when they're not perfect, they are faithful and they are his companions. He takes these three dear friends up the mountain. And in that quiet place, when they get away from all the distractions, they get away from everyone else, the crowds, the scribes, the Pharisees, those who threaten, and even the other disciples, the most brilliant thing happens that Loretta read for us. The face of Jesus shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white, Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah with them. I wonder when you hear this story, what image it creates in your mind. I, I think, for me, it's a very hard image to understand. There's a piece of art on the cover of your bulletin that's one of many that depict the transfiguration. This is a, a piece of contemporary art, and the artist 
had about eight different images of the Transfiguration. And I, I'm guessing uh, that part of why she has that is because in her mind she's gone through so many different stages of imagining what was this strange story like. But to these students, these disciples of Jesus, and students of the scriptures, it must have been the most amazing thing for them to see before them these two great pillars of the faith, Moses and Elijah, pillars of the faith that were so important to them. And for those early believers hearing the story after Jesus was raised from the dead, there must have also been immense encouragement for them knowing that Moses and Elijah and Jesus appeared together. It ties things together for them. It was an alignment of their faith, alignment of the faith of their forebears and of a God whose story was continuing to unfold before them. Now, it's no wonder that on this mountain, Peter our favorite ridiculous man of God, would look to Jesus and reveal such a brilliantly foolish idea to do what? Build three little huts. Build three dwellings. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. His proposal is strange, but at the same time, I get it. He says, let's stay here. This is good. We're seeing what we're seeing. We're seeing God. This is good. And Peter, you have to go back and think about what Jesus has just said to him. He just said, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And Peter wants to stay right where he is. He doesn't want his friend to die. He doesn't want to go to where Jesus says they're going to go. He's already afraid And so that's why he then says this idea. And when he says the idea, you notice there's no response immediately from Jesus. Really, the response, the response that comes is this sudden bright cloud that appears, and it overshadows them. And while Peter is still speaking, you can imagine he's explaining, we're going to do this, we're going to put these little huts, we're going to build the little, you know, we'll get the things together. And while it's still happening, this voice comes down and says, this is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, if the disciples weren't already afraid at what's been going on all around them, fear had now filled them. They fell to the ground, and Matthew writes that they were overcome by their fear. And Jesus comforts them. He touches them and says, get up and don't be afraid. And it's all over. It all ends. The images all go away. Jesus is back to normal, and the text says there's no one except Jesus with them. And they walk down that mountain. They walk down and they return to the other disciples. And the gospel continues with healings and miracles and teachings more of them, with this one about whom that voice from the great cloud said, this is my son. These three disciples, set apart, have this amazing experience on the mountaintop. Jesus invited them, right? He looked at them, his friends, and he said, come with me. He invited them to the mountain, but they had to choose to say, okay, I'll follow you. 
I'll go up this mountain. And again, this isn't the first time they've had to do it, right? It's not the first time they've had to choose to follow Jesus. We talked about this recently, about how they were called to drop their nets. Drop your nets and come and follow me, and they do it. So that was a huge deal, right? Dropping their nets, leaving their lives behind. This is not really a big deal. Jesus is saying to them, let's go. We're going to go for a hike, right? We're going to go up this mountain. But regardless of the weight of the invitation of what God is inviting them to do, they still needed to choose to say, okay, I'll go into this unknown. They followed Jesus without any knowledge of where they were going, without any indication that something important was even going to happen. There was no indication of it. If we're going to experience Christ on the mountain, if we're going to be dazzled by God, we need to be choosing to follow even when we don't know necessarily where we're going. I keep coming back to Peter over and over again. But from these views that we have here of Peter, whenever I want to question whether God can or would call even me to be his follower, all I have to do is look as far as Peter. Peter, Peter, after all, is going to be the same one who at the time Jesus is arrested and tortured and killed, Peter's going to be the one who denies even knowing him. Three times. And Peter is the one that Jesus just called Satan and said, get away. Peter is the one who gets shut down and rebuked by Jesus over and over again. And if Peter, flaws and all, is good enough for Jesus, if Peter is invited up to the mountain with Jesus, then maybe you and I are too. When these three disciples, when Peter and James and John follow Jesus up the mountain, it's there in this surprising place where they don't expect it. It's there that they encounter Jesus in this new way. And that God affirms to them that their understanding of Jesus as the Messiah is true. I mean, that's really what's happening here is that they've been following Jesus. By following Jesus, they begin to see this mystery, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus takes them away, they go up to this mountain, and God confirms it. Our encounters of God can be as profound, as powerful, as surprising, as wonderful. I've heard stories in this congregation of people who've experienced the mystical power of God when walking alongside others through grief and loss. I've heard stories of people sharing their hearts with one another over a meal or a walk and experiencing God in the connections with others who are living with pain. I've heard stories of people encountering God when stepping out of their comfort zone and engaging in a new mission project, or stepping into the unknown of an early morning discussion group talking about things they've never talked about before, or taking the chance and saying yes to going on a women's retreat even though they really don't want to go. When we offer ourselves to God, when we offer ourselves to God and we follow where God is leading us, when we walk up the mountain with Jesus, the transfiguration, the metamorphosis happens in our lives as the ordinary interactions and activities become transformed into something more. We become transformed. 
like those disciples, we can be tempted to want to have this transfiguration experience, the experience of the mountaintop, our experience of God. We, we are tempted to want it to not end. Like Peter wanting to build the little houses and stay on the mountain, we're also told, uh-uh, we got to go back down the mountain. Our experiences of God, our glimpses of the divine, we don't always know when they're going to happen. And I can't curate or manufacture those experiences of God for you or for me. In fact, the times when I've thought that I was going to experience God in the most profound ways, I've sometimes been left with silence or darkness. And at times when I thought I was running from God, I found that I was running right into those outstretched arms of God. But what I do know is that they happen more often when we're choosing to try and follow Jesus, when we're stepping into that, that mystery of not even knowing fully what it means to follow Jesus, but we're saying each day, yes, I want to try. I want to follow you. So I know we can't stay on the mountain. In fact, we don't know whether those disciples ever went back to that mountain. We don't even know what mountain it was. And I think that's important. I think it's important that even though this story was told from the outset, from the earliest moments of Christianity, it was recorded in, in the three Gospels. It was one of the most frequently told stories in the church. We don't know where it was. The place wasn't the point. It was the following of Jesus that was the point. And not just the following Jesus. Not just the following Jesus, but the truth that they found that was revealed to them when they chose to follow. In the C.S. Lewis book, The Silver Chair, I wonder if you've read any of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia. In The Silver Chair, the lion Aslan, who's a Christ-like character, says this. He says, here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearance. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. You see, our experience of God touches us deeply and it can transform us. But because we're not called to stay on the mountain to perpetually experience the presence of God, friends, that's, that's heaven. We're not called to do it in our lives. We're not called to perpetually experience the presence of God that means that we must be prepared to walk down the mountain with the memories of our encounters of God, with ourselves having been transformed by how God affected us. Yes, Peter's desire to stay on the mountain is misguided, but it's Jesus who's able to give him the courage to walk down the mountain. And when Jesus and the disciples are walking down the mountain, Jesus tells them to keep silent. Keep silent about the transfiguration until after the resurrection. 
And I know this must have been hard, right? The last thing you're going to want to do when you experience something like that is keep it a secret. And it must have been so hard for Peter and James and John to not tell anyone what they've experienced. But what this reveals, actually, it reveals a number of things. One of the things that it reveals, though, is that the purpose of this experience was to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God and to explain further the wonder of the resurrection that hadn't even happened yet. It was meant to give these disciples a way to articulate more about this confusing but critical reality of Christ's divinity. You know, our temptation can be to try and explain our faith. To be to explain our faith, our faith in Jesus, our faith in following Jesus. Temptation can be to explain it by doing the good things. To say we follow this good human, Jesus. But the transfiguration throws a wrench in that. Throws a wrench. Jesus the human is easy to get. He did good things. He loved people. He served others. Following Christ the human... It feels good, and it looks good, and these are things we should do. We know that, but we're not called to just follow Jesus the human, the model of good things. We're not a church to follow Jesus the human. We're called to follow Jesus, fully God, fully human. We're invited to be uncomfortable in that mystery of not fully understanding it. We're called to be uncomfortable. Uncomfortable with our experience of Christ's divinity. Historians who try and piece together the sources of the Gospels, they'll often write about the mystery that occurred in those first decades after the resurrection. The stories that were passed down through oral tradition. These stories became more reflective as they were retold. I wonder if you've experienced this with your own life. As the disciples looked back on their experiences with Jesus, they discovered that he had been planting signs of his divinity, signs of his coming death, signs of the resurrection from the very beginning of his time with them. It was woven into all of their experiences. And while they may not have been able to understand these things at the time, it was in their retelling of their stories that God became more visible. The experiences that we have, that you and I have, of encounters with God, wherever they are, whether they're on a mountaintop or they're in our kitchens around the table or they're in the classrooms or the play yard or the boardrooms or in the grocery store aisles or gathering around a table, riding in a car with a friend, having a cup of coffee and a talk in the doctor's office, wherever they are, right here at PCWS. Wherever we make space for encounters with the holy, these experiences reveal more to us about God, about who God is, who this God is who created us and who loves us, Friends, may we be willing to make ourselves available to walk up the mountain, wherever those mountains may be, where Jesus is guiding us to say, I want to follow you.
to follow Jesus where Jesus leads us. And in doing so, my friends, may we experience God's transforming love on that mountaintop. And may we also be ready to walk down the mountain, to walk down the mountain with one another, knowing that we're not perfect, but we're called to be on this journey, but also to walk down the mountain following Christ, this one who leads us up the mountain, but also leads us down the mountain to return to our lives so that having been transformed, we can then reflect God's glory and God's love to others in our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.